I was at the doctor's and I, I heard a patient waiting kind of a couple seats away from me in the waiting room and speaking loudly. Don't you hate that when people speak really loudly in a waiting room? But he was telling his wife how terrified he was that one of the candidates who was currently running for president is going to get elected. Now I'm going to let you choose in your own mind, using your own biases, which candidate I'm talking about, because the candidate's identity really makes no difference. Now I've spoken with friends and with relatives who are legitimately terrified about what our country is going to look like at the end of this year. I've met people who are scared to death that all of the threats that they perceive to be true or that they've read online to be true are in fact true. Again, feel free to use your own biases to imagine the threat that you perceive. And the fear that these people are showing has, has risen higher than sort of a normal fear lever. It's become a full-blown obsession. I've talked with people who spend hours every day grumbling and griping about how the other side is ruining the country. How the other side, you know, those people, they're ruining the whole world by believing in or pushing or even implementing laws and practices that those people sincerely believe will destroy the Western world as we know it. All this to say that people today are totally freaking out. Do you notice the, the name of the uh, little church plant that is taking place this morning next door to us? It's something along the lines of, welcome everybody, Sunday, good morning to the end of the world ministry. All right. I've never been there. I don't know what they talk about. But as your pastor, what I like to do is, as we, we make our way along the path toward Drawing closer to God, I like to listen to the general needs of our community and then help everybody understand what God has to say about these things and how God has called us to live our lives in light of these things. Well, as it turned out, last month, my friend Brant Hansen, some of you will remember Brant, he came to speak with us back in 2020 after we finished a series on his book, Unoffendable. Well, Brant published a new book. And as God's providence would have it, Brandt's new book, in my opinion, absolutely pegs, absolutely puts his finger on the current cultural moment and provides an extraordinary explanation of how God's people have been called to move through these turbulent days with the joy and freedom and peace that Jesus provides for us. So for the next few weeks, leading up to Palm Sunday, we're going to be going through Brandt's new book, Life is hard. God is good. So let's dance. Experiencing real joy in a world gone mad. So let me pray over everybody and then we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We are looking forward, God, to seeing how your word applies to our lives and how we can have joy in the midst of chaos. God, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Brant, just a little background. For over 30 years, Brant has been a Christian radio personality who for a while worked down here in, in South Florida at our local Christian radio station, WayFM. Brant currently hosts the Brant and Sherry Oddcast. You can get that on anywhere you get podcasts. 
It's one of the most popular Christian podcasts in America. Anne Brandt is a storyteller for an organization called Cure International. Cure International is a Christian medical ministry that provides life-saving surgery free of cost for children all over the developing world. Now, Brandt is a PK. He's a pastor's kid. And he's been married to his wife, Carolyn, for 33 years. They have two adult children. I know Brandt. I met Brandt about 20 years ago when we appeared together on a WayFM segment. Now, in my position, a part of my job, I, I read a lot, and I read a lot of Christian materials. And I've told some of you this before, I consider myself to be a complete snob when it comes to writers and communicators. If a writer or a communicator is unable to communicate his or her point clearly without being arrogant or condescending, I just am not interested. I won't give that writing a minute of my time. So if I've ever recommended a book or a speaker to you, you're going to notice something about all of them. They're always easy to understand. They're always very concise. They're always very clear. Because I have no patience for people who try to sound intelligent by adding more words than necessary or going on and on and on about their subject matter. Now, I tell you that because I want you to rest assured that, that Brant is a phenomenal communicator who has a way of cutting right to the heart of an issue and present it in a way that's not only clear, but it's engaging and it's even entertaining. And I found Brandt's observations in this book we're going to go through so compelling that I thought I'd just take everybody through it for a few weeks. With that said, though, I encourage everyone, if you're interested, go out and buy the book. Buy it in whatever format you like. I actually prefer Audible because I don't sit still very well, so I can listen to the book while I'm going around doing other things. And also, Brandt reads the book himself. He's, he's a Christian DJ, so he's got a great voice. He's good to listen to. I put a link on our website, hammockstreetchurch.com. If you pull down the resources, you'll see the link in there, you can pick it up real easily. So with that out of the way, let's just jump in, starting with chapter one, which he calls the second naivete, the chapter that combines a French philosopher and the Dukes of Hazard. You're not going to hear that from me, but it's funny in the book. Brand actually starts with chapter zero instead of chapter one, where he explains that he has not only maintained his faith in the face of the way that everything in his life should have made him abandon his faith, Brandt has experiences with some pretty bad church abuse. Brandt's pastor, father, abandoned his family to be with another woman. Brandt has his own personal struggles. He, he is on the uh, autism spectrum. He has Asperger's syndrome. He also has a neurological condition called nystagmus, which is a condition that causes both of his eyes to continuously dart back and forth, which makes him compensate by moving his head back and forth all the time. It looks like he's always saying no. And he likes to say, people don't like that. When people come up to you and say, how are you doing? And he's doing this. It, it, it puts people off. And also, Brand is deeply pessimistic. And he's deeply fatalistic in nature. And yet, notwithstanding all of that, Brand writes that he has seen so much beauty in God's world that he felt compelled to write a book to help others find the same joy that God has made available to him. God has made that joy available to all of us in this messed up world. So in chapter one, Brandt starts us off with a story of one man's calm in the midst of a storm, an actual storm like we're going to experience, I think, this afternoon. This story comes from the book of Acts chapter 27. I'll put the verses up for you. 
when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, remember this is uh, Luke writing the book of Acts, Paul and some of other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. So now, as we get going, I want to review a couple of things. Now, remember, the book of Acts was authored by Luke. It's actually the second part of the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke came along. Luke wrote it to tell us, this is the story of Jesus. And he kept going, and he said, and this is the story of the movement that Jesus begun, the story of the early church. Now, Luke was Paul's doctor. He was his physician. Paul had something going on. We don't know what it was, but he had a condition that gave him a lot of trouble. So he had a physician that traveled with him. But Luke was also Paul's benefactor, and he was also his traveling companion. So this means that Luke was the eyewitness and eyewitness to all of Paul's ministry. Now, in this story, Paul had been arrested and was being transported to his trial on a ship along with 275 other people. And the journey, while it started off well enough, we go to verse 14, before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeasters swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. So here's the picture. It's a terrifying storm. And during the course of this storm, the crew began throwing things overboard to lighten the load. They even had to throw their food overboard to salvage any chance that they had of surviving this storm. And the way that Luke put it, 275 people on the ship were panicking, in full-blown panic, as you would be too if you're on a ship going through a hurricane. Paul, however, was not panicking. So the question was why? Why were all the other passengers, including the captain, including the entire crew, why were they panicking while Paul was sitting there just cool as a cucumber? Was it because Paul was stupid? Was it because Paul was ignorant? He was below deck. He didn't notice anything was going on. Was that it? Was it because Paul was unaware of the danger that the ship obviously faced? Or because maybe Paul just chose to ignore the danger and pretend it didn't exist? Everybody around him is freaking out. Why wasn't Paul? Well, as it turned out, it was because Paul knew more than everybody else, not less. God had told Paul that even though the ship would sink, everyone on the ship would be safe. Everyone on the ship would live. We go to verse 23. An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Now, Brant referenced this story because it seems like in our culture today, it's like we're all in one big boat going through a storm and everybody is freaking out. Anxiety and anger today are so widespread that if you happen to not be anxious and angry, people would think it's because you're being purposefully ignorant of the big issues. He observed that people will actually get angry with you if you're not as scared and ticked off as they are. Have you ever experienced that? I have friends that have come to me and go, don't you see it? Aren't you worried? And I go, no, God's in control. What's wrong with you? They get mad. Don't you know about this crisis or that injustice or this other tragedy? What is wrong with you, man? But the people of God aren't supposed to walk around scared and worried all the time. 
the people of God are called to joy. As the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard said, joy is not a passing sensation of pleasure, but a pervasive sense of well-being. You know the Christian hymn, it is well with my soul? Yeah, it's like that. That means that the believer's sense of well-being is not dependent upon the circumstances. The sense of well-being for the believer is our default. Brant wants us to know that for the Jesus follower, it is quite reasonable to live that way even in our crazy world. Even though there is evil in the world, and there is, joy comes from knowing more about how things work, not less about how things work. Then Brent gave a great illustration. Think about this. Young, naive children have the ability to believe in a simple, beautiful thing. Right? Kids, kids believe in magic. Kids believe in unicorns. Kids believe in all sorts of beautiful things. But when we become adults, we spend our lives questioning that thing, doubting that thing, criticizing that thing, making whatever it is more complex than it should be, even mocking it. But Brandt observed this. I've learned that simple things aren't stupid things. It's complexity that often masks foolishness with a veneer of intelligence. And about the difficulties of this world, Jesus gave us this simple promise. Here's what Jesus said about the world's difficulties. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. Because in this world you will, not might, not may, you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. So if ever there's a pastor that says, oh, if you believe in Jesus, smooth sailing for the rest of your lives, you'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams, no disease, no sickness, it's all great. Jesus says differently. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. So if we simply believe what Jesus believes, we should have a sense of well-being, no matter what the circumstances. Even though life will beat us down and sometimes cause us sadness and pain and often leave us unhappy for a season, Jesus has invited us to draw close to him so that we can have peace throughout it all. Now, I have to tell you, throughout my Christian walk, which is a little over 30 years now, I've been blessed to see this phenomenon play out. Years ago, a friend of mine was nearing the end of his life as a result of the return of a cancer that he had had decades before. And I went to visit him in hospice to pray with him and give him some words of comfort to help him through the ordeal that would end with his end. And on the drive over, I was psyching myself up. And I'm saying, yeah, you got to be upbeat. you got to be positive during this visit. And then I got there, and I found that I was concerned for nothing. My friend understood the joy of being a Jesus follower. He was calm. He was content. And he was waiting with eager anticipation, eager enthusiasm for meeting his Savior. And I was blessed to observe that. Paul referred to it as the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. That's chapter one. Moving on to chapter two, Brandt said he's not in this for the t-shirt. Now in this chapter, Brandt tackles the issues of the Christian faith breeding 
hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And that's the hypocrisy we've all heard of, we've all talked about. That's the hypocrisy that actually drives people away from the Christian faith. Grant's subtitle is this, Why Religious Hypocrisy Hasn't Chased Me from Jesus. And he begins a chapter talking about his experiences with the Cure International Ministry. As I noted at the beginning, Cure International provides no-cost surgery for conditions that are very treatable in the West, but virtually unavailable in the developing world due to cost and due to lack of access to health care. And he shared the story of how the surgeons of Cure gave a new lease on life to a young girl in Afghanistan. It was through Cure that Brandt was able to see the Christian faith lived out in a profound and impactful way. Now, I haven't been a part of anything quite that profound, but I have been similarly amazed by the way that Christian ministries have provided critical services to those in need. Because in my opinion, that's where the Christian community shines the brightest. That said, Brandt also observed that the Christian community has a dark side, and it does. With the exponentially increased access to information that we all have nowadays that defines our time, when, when we wanted information as kids, we had to look in an encyclopedia, a book that was really expensive, so you'd only buy like a piece of it at a time. And if you only bought A and B, but you needed to know something that was in books E and F, well, just too bad you didn't know. I, I, was, I was raised in a time when the only person who knew everything was my father. And in retrospect, no, he didn't. But we didn't know that at the time. But now, man, we have so much access to information. And if you look out there on the interwebs, there is no shortage of Christians behaving badly. Now, Brandt talks about something called the Christian deconstruction movement. Online, there's a lot of what they call themselves formerly evangelical Christians who are now deconstructing, who are now questioning, questioning, questioning their faith. You should always be able to question your faith. If God is real and we believe that he is, he can handle your questions. But they're deconstructing, and now they're formerly outspoken Christian public figures, and they're going through this deconstruction movement. Because of the toxic words and actions or behaviors that we see, which are allegedly done in the name of Jesus, there are plenty of those. Many people are abandoning the Jesus movement. They're abandoning their faith entirely. But Brandt writes it. Listen, I get that. And by the way, I get that too. I've mentioned many times over the years, I am always astounded at the way that the supposed people of Jesus treat one another, as well as the lost in the world to whom they've been called to deliver the good news. It is not a good look. Brandt's a pastor's kid. And as a pastor's kid, you get to see how the sausage is made. You're behind the curtain. As a pastor's kid, Brandt experienced firsthand the horrible actions of his pastor father. And because he saw that, he certainly would have been justified if he walked away from the hypocritical practice of the Christian faith that he'd watched in his own life. To that end, Brandt called out the way that professional Christians have all but turned the church into an industry. People on the right and the left have dragged Jesus into their politics, even though Jesus himself, did you ever realize this? Everybody tries to adopt Jesus for their own position. Again, it's not a right thing. It's not a left thing. It's a bold thing. Jesus himself refused to be dragged into politics. In John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus knew that people were going to come and grab him and make him king by force. 
That's what they wanted. The people wanted a king who would take over what the Romans were doing, who would overthrow Caesar and make himself the king. But Jesus withdrew to a mountain by himself. Jesus withdrew from the people who were lobbying for him to become a king because he came to establish a different kind of kingdom. Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people try to enlist Jesus to bolster their completely unchristian positions or arguments. And along with that, I can't stomach when Christian leaders take it upon themselves to call out other Christians and attack other Christians who happen to differ with them in their biblical interpretation. Sometimes that makes me feel like Groucho Marx when he said, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. That's why I've told people over the years that I am so glad that I met Jesus before I met his church. Even Gandhi is said to have noticed this. And he's said to have commented, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The fact of the matter is the only way that Jesus is ever resistible is when his people do something that makes him seem resistible. Think about that the next time you're out in public wearing your Jesus wear. And by the way, don't get me wrong, there's absolutely nothing wrong or even questionable about wearing Christian t-shirts or Christian hats or Christian bracelets. I have them. I wear them all the time. But when those things become the only evidence of a person's Christian faith, they not only lose their impact, but they actually damage the person's ability to share the faith of the Jesus follower with the lost. I was standing at the deli at Publix. Don't a lot of my stories go back to Publix? Standing at the deli at Publix, and there was a woman in front of me from our church. She does not go here anymore, so I feel comfortable telling you this. She was wearing a big I Love Jesus shirt, big cross. She was lighting into the poor guy behind the counter. Oh, my gosh. The language would make a sailor blush. Going on and on and on. I didn't say anything. I was just watching and listening. And then she finished, and the poor guy looked so sheepish, and he did whatever she asked for, and she turned around and saw me. Some moments in life are just so entertaining. And she's like, oh, Pastor, hi. Uh, I, uh, 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 you know. Chick-fil-A makes an excellent Christian chicken sandwich, doesn't it? But as Brand said, that's not enough for us to keep up the faith. But seeing and experiencing the reality of the kingdom of God is simply too good to walk away from. Popular pop religion is not worth investing our lives in, but Jesus is. Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of heaven that he came to introduce. We're going to talk about that a lot in the book. Brandt introduced two biblical examples. First, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought the field. The lesson here is that the value of being part of the kingdom of heaven is worth selling everything else in your life for. 
And second, the kingdom of heaven is like a valuable jewel, Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The lesson here, once we realize the eternal value of belonging to Jesus' eternal kingdom, it's worth divesting ourselves of everything that we previously thought valuable just so we can be a part of that kingdom. As Brandt said, the kingdom is just too appealing, too poetic, and too stunning to ignore. The alternatives grow dingy in its light. If you know what is life and death valuable, well, you just have to have it. So while the people of God can certainly make a mess out of things, and we can, there's still nothing better in all of creation than belonging to Jesus. When Jesus described himself as the bread of life to the disciples, though they were a bit put off by the description, remember, he's at the Passover, he says, I'm the bread of life. They're like, no, you're weird. A lot of them walked away. But the ones who stayed understood that Jesus was offering something that no one else could. In John 6, 67, Jesus asked the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, (laughs) To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Why should we leave? No one else offers this kind of joy and peace and sense of well-being regardless of the circumstances. Jesus' gospel is just too good to pass up for whatever the world has to offer on to chapter 3. Nobody moves into Assumption, Illinois. I've never been there. Anybody been to Assumption, Illinois? And no one's been there. There you go. God's personality might be better than you think. That's where Brandt starts this chapter. He talks about his hometown, Assumption, Illinois. It's a small town, no stoplights. And it was there that Brandt found himself lonely. He was a lonely, uncoordinated, uncool outcast. And his world had been shattered. His pastor father left his mother. He and his brother and his mother had to move into a 500-square-foot house which was all his mother could afford. And Bran remembers praying that God would deliver him a friend in this small, out-of-the-way place. And God answered Bran's sincere prayer the very next day. That was but one of the times that Bran experienced the goodness of God. Perhaps you've experienced the goodness of God in your own life. Bran noted that if God would answer the prayers of a small boy living in a small house in a small town, God would answer anybody's sincere prayers. And that is a great comfort. What a great comfort it is to worship a God like that. But how can we know if God is even real? Much of what Jesus tried to get people to do was to rethink their views about God. In fact, the word repent, it actually means to rearrange your entire way of thinking, feeling, and being in order to forsake, in order to walk away from that which is wrong. It's tough to get people to rethink anything that they've already decided upon, right? I mean, you know the confirmation bias. You already have an opinion. You read an article that agrees with your opinion. You're like, oh, obviously this article is authoritative. Sure. That one is stupid because I don't agree with it, right? That's what we do. And it's even worse when when it comes to our faith or our lack of faith. In God, But notwithstanding, Jesus did just that. He was constantly trying to get people to rethink their view of God. In fact, he knew that it was so special when someone rethought their view of God and came around to the right view. 
Here's what he said in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person. By the way, when you read righteous person in the New Testament like that, think of self-righteous person. So they think they're righteous. Over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Grant wrote, people resented it. Even though Jesus was saying in so many different ways, look, guys, God is better than you think. You can trust him. Because of him, you are safe in this world. You can go all in with him, even in the worst case scenario. God has your back. My preaching teacher put it this way. You are so much worse than you think you are. But God is so much better than you ever thought possible. Many of us just refuse to believe it. Rethinking is so hard. It's so hard, in fact, that people usually will choose anxiety and anger over rethinking what they already came up with. But our God has promised us that when he will hear us whenever we humbly cry out to him. Brandt experienced it firsthand. So have I. I hope you have as well. On to chapter 4. For he hath brought forth a cushion. We don't need to be anxious, even if the ship goes down. So Brandt opened this chapter talking about his love for playing games and his lack of skill at those games. He told a story of how during a game of fall, the leader, he led a group of children all around a playground until he tripped and fell spectacularly, face first, off a slide, over some gravel, and into a tree. And after watching this horrifying spectacle, one of the kids tentatively asked, do we have to follow you doing that? And he used this illustration to introduce the idea of how we are to follow Jesus. Many people think that if they follow Jesus, their lives are going to get worse. He's a buzzkill. He's going to be a party pooper. Their lives are going to crash in a similar way to the way that Black Brant crashed into the tree. But true faith in Jesus calls on us to trust him before we follow him. Actually, in order to follow Jesus, we need to trust him more than we trust ourselves. Most people are afraid of trusting someone else, but they're really afraid of trusting an invisible, inaudible, intangible person like God. But as Brandt points out, it's when we really put our trust in Jesus that everything changes. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really good at coming up with worst-case scenarios. Do you do that? Something happens, and immediately in your mind, you go to the worst outcome it could possibly be. I make up those worst-case scenarios all the time when I'm trying to make a decision. And as Brandt points out, when we get good at that, we get good at being stressed and anxious about things that have not happened yet and things that might not ever happen. But Brandt asks, what if, what if you could know that even if the worst-case scenario happens, you'll somehow be okay? Well, that's what Jesus told us. For people who trust in God, Dallas Willard said this, our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Jesus is eternal, and he knows everything, and he's not constrained by time or space, and if you put your trust in him, you needn't ever worry about anything ever again. So when the news personality or the YouTube personality, or the Rumble personality, or the X personality, or the Truth Social personality tells you that you better be worried, you can be confident in telling them, at least in your own mind, hey, 
get lost. God is not concerned. God is not absent. God has not lost control. And God has told us that he works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, to illustrate this point, Jesus referred to the story of how Jesus calmed the storm. You remember the story, perhaps, after Jesus had addressed a large crowd, he and the disciples got onto a boat in order to cross the Sea of Galilee. And when they were out there in the middle of that massive lake, that's what the Sea of Galilee is, it's a, it's a large lake, they were hit by a huge, angry storm. And all the disciples started to panic. But not Jesus. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And they woke him up. And they screamed, teacher, don't you care if we drown? These guys were such whiners. And I'm sure Jesus got up, and I'm sure he rolled his eyes and went, Psh. He rebuked the wind and said to the waters, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And then he turned to his disciples, and he said, you knuckleheads. That's my version. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus was showing the disciples that if we trust him, he'll allow us to live a life in a wonderfully free way. He'll allow us to live a life in which even if the ship goes down, we're going to be safe if we're with him. If we're with him, we're safe. Death itself is not the last word. The last word is joy. Don't misunderstand. There's going to be fear and there's going to be pain, and there's going to be sorrow, but all of those pass. Following Jesus allows us to live lives that are ultimately characterized by joy if we follow him with everything we have, with every part of us. Even if we were to lose everything and our country were to come to an end, the end that everybody on all sides of the divide is predicting right now, we still don't need to be anxious about it because God is in control. As the prophet Jeremiah told us in the book of Lamentations, the Lord's compassions never fail. God is good, and he has been good all the time. Our last chapter for the day is chapter 5. It goes quick. A genius idea. Outsource your worry. Genius is not unrealistic in telling us not to be anxious. So Brent began with an idea of outsourcing. We've all experienced outsourcing, I assume. Whenever we call a help desk, whenever we call a company, a merchant, chances are we're going to speak with an overseas agent to whom the work has been outsourced. Well, what if we could do that? What if we could outsource our worries? Think about it. What if we had the ability, whenever we're facing a medical test or a procedure, or we're hoping our kids will get onto a team or into a program or into a school, whatever, we've applied for a job and we can think of nothing else. What if we could just hire somebody to do all the worrying for us? It sounds crazy, right? We know deep down at least that our worrying isn't going to change the outcome, right? So it would be just as effective if someone else were doing the worrying for us as if we were doing the worrying ourselves, right? You guys want to start a service like that? Wouldn't that be cool, like have a 1-800-WORRY number? The Apostle Peter told us this in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties, cast all your worries on Jesus because he cares for you. If outsourcing a phone center to the Philippines works all right, imagine how effective outsourcing all our worries to the creator of the universe would be. As Brandt points out, the more we learn to do this, the more we learn to trust that God is able to handle all the worries that we'll ever have, the better it'll be. 
Now, Brant writes, he recognizes how hard this is for us to do. This is very hard for us to do. We all crave this control in our lives. But he gives a really good example that I think you'll like. Think about what we do when we bowl. We all do it. We grab the ball, we approach the lane, we swing the ball back, we release it over the line toward the pins, and then after we've released the ball, we're not touching the ball anymore, what do we do? We all twist and turn and watch, like we're moving our bodies around thinking we can control the way the ball goes. We're trying to control the ball with our mind and our motions. We know it doesn't work, but we do it every time. Brand says we ought to recognize we can't control our lives that way either. We can only do what we can do, and then we can only trust God for what comes next. Wouldn't life be better if we could just do that? Jesus told us that. He was very clear about that. We don't even need to spend a minute worrying about the future. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds. They don't worry. They don't sow, they don't reap or store away in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than the birds are? Can you add any of you one single hour to your life by worrying? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Because as long as we're worrying, we can't seek first the kingdom of God. Every single thing that we worry about every day, our government, the climate, our finances, our health, our relationships, our future, our safety, everything, Jesus already knows about all of it. The birds have it right. They don't have any notions that they control their universe. And neither should we. We belong to a God who is large and in charge. We have nothing to fear and everything to be thankful for. Our God is our loving Heavenly Father, and He wants the absolute best for us. And that's why He sent His Son to connect us with Him forever. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the way that Brand has broken down your word in a way that both encourages us and strengthens us for the challenges that we face in this life. Father, help us to come see you in a new way, the way that you want us to see you. And Father, please give us the wisdom and the courage to cast all our cares and anxieties on you because you have promised to never let us go. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.